Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show. Sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts... Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Uh, Chase is off today, so I'm handling the show entirely myself today. So uh, phone numbers will always be open, uh, 833-288-0973. That will always get you through for your unbiased, no strings attached, formal opinion about what you want to talk about, but I've got to talk about the unemployment, the job openings uh, that came out uh, yesterday, and the jobs report uh, showed the labor market, well, strength is is slowing, but uh, overall, it still remains in a very healthy spot. The headline numbers saw payrolls increase 315,000, which was essentially in line with the estimate of 318,000. While this was the slowest growth since April 2021, it is still a good growth rate, and people need to realize the blockbuster job games we saw from job uh, recruitment, as we call it, well, they're, they're now in the past. And uh, one negative note for the job growth was the previous two months were revised lower by a net 107,000 jobs. The headline unemployment rate did rise 0.2% to 3.7%, but I do view this as a positive because it was driven by an increase in the labor participation rate of 0.3% to 62.4%. The labor force participation rate still remains 1% below the February 2020 level. The gains in employment were broad-based with every category seeing growth, but business and professional services continued to lead the way with an additional 68,000 jobs in healthcare and retail trade were close behind with additional 48,200 jobs and 44,000 jobs respectively. And I keep hearing from people like, oh, but these are all low paying jobs. I'm sorry, business and professional service jobs, healthcare, uh, those are not low paying jobs. So these are decent jobs that are being you know, uh, gained here. Uh, leisure and hospitality, this surprised me, has seen some of the strongest growth but saw an increase of just 31,000 jobs in the month of August, which was substantially lower than the 91,000 job increase in the month of July. Uh, This sector continues to remain beaten down compared to pre-pandemic levels as the total number of payrolls is still 1.2 million jobs below where we were in February 2020. And it seems to me when I go traveling or, or, or we talk about the flights and everything else, there seems to be such a big uh, you know, leisure and travel, I- I'm surprised there's still 1.2 million jobs below where we were back in February of 2020. Uh, one of the report I found interesting was the number of people that were counted as long-term unemployed, those jobless for 27 weeks or more. Well, that currently stands at 1.1 million and accounts for 18.8% of all unemployed persons. Now, I, I hate to say it, but with job openings nearly two times higher than the total number of unemployed persons, how have they not been able to find a job? And, and many times people ask me, how is this? How, why are there people unemployed when there's so many jobs out there? Are people still getting money from the government? Uh, I said, that's probably a possibility. Also too, they could be living off their savings. Uh, maybe they're living back with their parents. 
um, maybe that there, there's so many things that 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 just don't make sense. Some people did go into uh, employment early. Uh, I think some of those will come back out because they have either boredom or the income is not quite what they thought it was, the decline in the stock market, their investments. So uh, it is strange to me as well that uh, almost two times the number of jobs outstanding for each person employed, and we still have, uh, uh, again, the uh, 1.1 million uh, unemployed, uh, well, 18.8% long-term unemployed. So don't know what the answer is, but it does make uh, make me question what's going on there. Well, let's talk about the JOLTS report because JOLTS is the job opening labor turnover survey. And this is where we see how many jobs are outstanding. Well, the JOLTS report continues to show strength as job openings in the month of July saw results of 11.24 million openings easily topping the estimate of 10.3 million and actually an increase from last month as well. This was, uh, in June, it was, uh, what, 11.04. Uh, the job openings level is still close to two times the number of available workers as they totaled just 5.67 million in the month of July. While this report is a major positive for the labor market, it remains concerning on the inflation front the discrepancy between openings and available workers adds pressure to wage inflation as companies compete over employees. And it makes me wonder if we have enough people in the labor force to help resolve the problem, chain issues we have been seeing in the economy. And this is something that has been amazing to me because there are jobs out there uh, when you do leave a job. And, and this is why I keep talking to about the, the recession. I don't believe it will be as bad as we think it's going to be because of the fact that if you have a job and you're very comfortable with that job, you know you got the income coming in, and also too with the possibility that if you lost that job, well that's okay, I can find another job and maybe even at a higher pay. So that's why we don't like the inflation. We do have, by the, the number term, a technical recession of two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. However, I do not believe this will be a terrible re- recession because people have jobs. Let's talk about the Wall Street because I, I always bring up things on Wall Street that I don't like seeing to where I think people will get uh, taken advantage of, high fees, lose money, and so forth. Well, we have seen speculation in cryptocurrencies falter along with the meme stocks. That's that's in the past. We know that's not bad. Well, as I've always said, Wall Street is great with coming out with products that they can make money on investors who speculate on trying to get rich quick. And you shouldn't do that. That's not a good thing. Uh, you now will be seeing what is known as a single stock ETF, which uses various high-risk techniques along with options and futures, and in some case, even leverage. Now, these are three very risky tools. This will allow investors to speculate more on short-term moves up and down of your popular stocks like Tesla, Apple, Nike, and in the works, they've been working with other companies like Boeing and Salesforce. Now, they promote the benefit that you can't lose more than what you invested, and you don't need to sign any margin agreements or any other pesty paperwork that goes with all those high-risk uh, tools they're going to be using. And, of course, Wall Street will make their money off the fees. That seems to range somewhere between 0.95% to 1.15%. And, once again, people with little knowledge of how these work – and with excitement and enthusiasm that they'll get rich, will jump into these new ETS, which uh, they hope will fill the dreams of getting rich quick. Well, I can now unfortunately see down the road, I would guess eh, probably three to five years, people who lost their money complaining it was unfair and someone needs to reimburse them. It was not their fault. They did not read the paperwork or understand what they invested in. 
would someone please tell these people to stop speculating and, and just invest in good quality companies for the next three, four or five years and, and be happy with a potential average return of eh, eight, maybe 10%. Once again, investors are being warned of another great money maker for Wall Street and a big loser for them. And this happens, I mean, that's what Wall Street does. I mean, Wall Street, their job is to make fees for themselves, not fees for for the investors, unfortunately. So, one thing I do wanna bring up uh, before we take calls, actually all lines are open. So again, if you wanna call in for that unbiased, no strings attached, fundamental opinion about what you wanna talk about, phone number 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. Well, I gotta say, buckle your seatbelt, as September is historically the worst month of the year for stocks. Going back to 1928, both the S&P 500 index and the Dow Jones Industrials have an average loss of around 1% in the month of September. Keep in mind, an average does not mean there have been up months in the past. Uh, for September, um, I see three things that can weigh on the market. First off would be another interest rate increase of 3.4 or three and a quarters, uh, three quarters of a percent. Uh, second, oil going back to $100 a barrel. Now, we've seen oil drop down to the, what, around $85, $86 a barrel because of demand has slowed. China's kind of shut things down again. Um, I think that could turn around, unfortunately, uh, and go back up. Uh, and don't forget, uh, the end of September, now this won't affect September, but maybe it will towards the last week, that will, will the, the, the release of that 1 million barrels a day from the strategic reserves, that's gonna stop uh, the, the end of the month. So it could be some speculation that, well, what's gonna happen in October? We could see oil start ticking up towards the end of the month there. And then lastly, uh, more bad news coming out of the war in Ukraine, that could cause problems as well, because if that gets worse, um, that's, that's not gonna be good because war is just not good for, for any type of markets or, or the economy. And, and I have said, and I do try to keep up on it, it's not the headline news it used to be. Uh, I still pick up many articles I read about it, just keep, keep up to it with uh, Ukraine and what's going on. They still are fighting. They, they still seem to be pushing Russia around somewhat and getting them out of certain areas have held, held on. Uh, what Ukraine is saying, the problem they're having is that Russia does have uh, some great weapons compared to them, but the attitude of the the um, soldiers uh, in Ukraine is far better than the ones in Russia. The, the Russian soldiers still seem like they don't really wanna be there, they're kind of forced to be there, but the Ukrainian soldiers, they wanna fight because they're defending their homeland. So that's the, the big advantage they have. But uh, Russia, and I, I, I talked about this also in our newsletter, where uh, with a newsletter that we talked about um, how Russia now, I think the number was uh, prior to the war in Ukraine, they're bringing in about $12 billion a month it was in uh, oil revenue. Well now, because oil has increased, that's closer to $20 billion. And, and unfortunately, Russia is using that money to produce weapons and so forth for the U war in Ukraine. So I, I really wish the United States and the rest of the world would really uh, produce more oil because that would be a detriment to Russia and they could not have that money to produce more weapons to fight against Ukraine. So, but that would be the other thing that would really hurt uh, the markets in September. And, and, and again, keep in mind, it doesn't mean that it's always gonna be down uh, September. Things could change uh, coming up, you know, 
in, 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 in two weeks or, or three weeks, things can actually change and also the market turns around and for the entire month actually ends up 1%. But I'm just kind of letting you know, be prepared, probably a lot of volatility. I think uh, so far for the first two days of, of September, I think we are down, but uh, two days did not make a month. And I always tell people, we don't care about what happens on a one month time frame. anyways. We look at things year to year and we know we're gonna have down years as well. We tell people out of a seven year period, eh, you're probably gonna have a couple down years. But keep on the course, make sure you're investing on the fundamentally strong companies. Alrighty, phone number is 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. Let's go out to San Diego and speak with Jeff. Jeff, you're on the Smart Best Show with Brent Chase. How can we help you out? Yeah, I was interested in Nike. Okay. Um, I don't own it. I'd like to own it. And I noticed it's it's way off. It's 52-week high and near its 52-week low, but I don't know um, much about the P.E. Yeah, I know Nike got pretty expensive, so I'm not surprised it had a pullback, but the question is, is it a pullback enough to make it a buy now? Right. Let's take a look at the Nike. Uh, their symbol is NKE. Uh, they're in the industry of footwear and accessories. Uh, short uh, float here, we got about only 1.5%, so that's positive. Institutional ownership, well, that's 82.9%. Now, the PE is still high, it's 28.2 versus 23.7. Price of sales, 3.7 versus 2.1. Price to book value looks good though, 11.3 versus 35. But price to cash flow is expensive as well, 32.8 versus 26.4. Now, they do have a good growth ratio though, or peg ratio, 2.8. Well, that's the same as the industry, but both of those are pretty good to have a peg at 2.8. Look at the growth on the company. The earnings, unfortunately, uh, over the past year are down 0.5%, but the industry is down 4.8%. Sales only rose by 1.1% for Nike not as good as the industry growth at 2.7. And even the five-year growth estimate from the analysts, it's a 10.7 for Nike, which is pretty good. But for some reason, the industry of footwear and accessories, they think it's gonna grow up 42%. So Nike seems to be lagging there. Perhaps they had a lot of their growth over the past few years and going forward, they won't have that type of growth. Uh, they do pay a dividend, 1.2%, uh, use 31% of their earnings to pay that out. We do see that uh, the dividend has increased by 10.9% over the past year, 11% over the past one year. Uh, they pay that dividend consistently for 10 years, which is pretty good as well. Uh, let's take a look at the balance sheet. We see we got the current ratio 2.6 versus 2.4. That is good. Debt to equity 0.8 versus 0.9. I like seeing that. We do see a net profit margin of 12.9 versus 9.5. That's also a positive. And the return on equity is very good, 39.6. That is above the industry at 38.5. And we look at return on equity of above, well, 15, 16 is where we like to see it. Now, looking at the past of the stock here, we do see that the stock did close on Friday at 105.74. And you're right, gosh, it had a high of $179.10. Uh, the 105.74, that's very close to the 52-week low of $99.53. And year to date, they are down 36.1%. So I'm surprised, a little bit surprised on that because it is a big decline, but also too, when I look at how high they were before, yeah, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Let's look out to uh, May, 2024. They're on a fiscal year. Uh, we see earnings of about $45.55 based on the mean of 30 analysts, the high being $4, I'm sorry, the, the low being $4 estimate, 
high 550, so the 455 pretty tight. But if I have a multiple, and we use a multiple of 16.6, I can't do that in my head. But if you use a multiple of 15, that would give you a stock uh, uh, sell price of probably around 75 to 80. So even though it's pulled back quite a bit here, Jeff, I still don't think it's quite the time to get into Nike. Uh, and also, too, I have seen their earnings have fallen as well. And the estimate, uh, 90 days ago, the analysts thought they're going to earn $5.43. As I said, now it's down to four fifty-five. So you could see more of a pullback. And I guess the big question is, as the economy slows down and uh, you know people have an inflation, maybe they won't be buying those high-priced Nikes where they're saying, you know what, I'll just go to Kohl's or, or someplace else and just get normal tennis shoes and not pay $200 for, for a pair of Nikes. So I think they're going to have a trouble during a slowdown in the economy. I, I would not recommend it at this point in time. All righty. All right. Thank you. All right, Jeff. Thanks for calling. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All righty. That does open the phone line. 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Let's go out to San Diego and speak with Jim. Jim, you're on the Smart Vest Show, Brent Chase. How can I help you? Hi, Brent. Um, could you look at, please, uh, a company called DXC Technology? Okay. And do you hold that or are you looking to buy it? <clears throat> no, I'm just kind of, uh, I guess you could say looking to buy it. I, I saw it um, on the ticker, and I noticed it was up during a down day. I kind of piqued my interest. Oh, okay. Well, well that's a reversal there. So let's see what... Uh, what is it? Uh, DXC, uh, DXC Technology, I guess is the name of the company there. Uh, they're in the information technology services, uh, about 3.9% float on the company, short float that is. Uh, institutional ownership, pretty high, 91%. Uh, PE ratio here, Jim, looking pretty good, 12.7 versus 39.1, so that's a good start. Uh, price of sales also looks good, 0.4 versus 1.8. Price to tangible book value, 6.2. That sounds high, but the industry is not material. So that is a pretty good thing to have a price to tangible book value of 6.2 when the industry is obviously there. Take out the intangibles and there's nothing there. So I like seeing that price to tangible book there. Price of cash flow, 4.1 versus 15.9. That is good. And a peg ratio, 0.5. Very low, especially compared to the industry, up 5.4. Now, look at what they've done to the earnings. They've done very well here. Uh, last year of 68.2% uh, versus the industry at 19.9. Uh, the sales, unfortunately, went down 8.8% when the industry was up 10.3. So you got to ask yourself a question. Well, wait a minute. How can you grow your earnings at 68%, but yet your sales fail? You, you want to understand, make sure there's not a, any accounting tricks going on here that will give you problems down the road. We do see a five-year growth estimate uh, from the analyst of 16.3 versus 11.2. That's a positive. Uh, DXC does not pay a dividend. Look at the balance sheet. We've got a current ratio of 1.1. Uh, that's okay. The industry is slightly better at 1.5. Debt to equity, 1.2 versus 0.9. Uh, that is higher, but I'm still okay with 1.2 as long as that everything else checks out pretty good on the debt to equity. We do see that uh, they have a net profit margin of 3.4. Not as good as the industry at 5.1. Return on equity is also low here, 11.5 versus 19 for the industry. Uh, let's take a look where the stock has been here. We do see that uh, they closed on Friday at $27.48. Now, the high for the stock has been $39.65, the low, $23.99. Uh, 
Uh, year to date, they're down about 14.6%. That does compare to the S&P being down 17%. Uh, let's take a look at the analysts, see what they have for earnings going forward on DXC Technologies. Going out to March 2024, we see based on the mean of 12 analysts, uh, earnings of $4.63, the low being $4.16, the high being 5 not a not a great range there, but not too bad. That that 463, by the way, that is down from 90 days ago when the analysts thought they're going to earn four dollars and ninety five cents. If I put a multiple of uh, you know about 16 on that, I get a stock price around uh, what around oh 60, 65 or so, which makes it look like based on the current price like a a, a pretty good buy because the stock's at what 27. So do some more research on it. Uh, I'm not sure what the company does but it's worth the research because you've got uh, some decent fundamentals there and some good potential earnings going forward. All righty. All right. Thanks, Brad. Hey, may I ask you a quick question? Sure. On stag stagflation, do you see that as any kind of a threat or on the horizon? I know you can't predict things, but just curious. Well, I, I, I do not see that as, as a problem um, because stagflation is obviously inflation with a slowing economy. I, I'm still looking at good numbers for, uh, the economy. We, we just talked about the jobs report earlier. Um, also, too, I believe inflation will be slowing down because I've seen good things on inflation. I've seen wheat, uh, soybeans, uh, you know, th these things coming down in price, you know, 20, 30 percent at the wholesale level or at the farming level, which will eventually pass through to the consumer. Uh, I also read something this past week, uh, I believe it was, where the meat packing company is saying that they're doing much better as far as packing the meat and getting it out and people coming back to work so they're not so far behind because a lot of this inflation was caused by, as always, too much money chasing too few goods. I've always said, I want to keep those goods, you know, in demand, but we want to increase the supply because that 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 does have a good economy. So we seem to be increase, increasing the supply of of goods, uh, which will bring down prices, and also to uh, with a strong job market. I think we can uh, avoid stagflation uh, because strong job market and supply increasing. Alrighty. All right. Thank you. Appreciate okay. it. Okay, Jim. Thanks for calling. Have a good one. Okay, bye. Bye. -bye. You too. Alrighty, that does open the phone line, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Let's go out to Spring, uh, Spring Valley and speak with BJ. BJ, you're on the Smart Invest Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Hey, hey how you doing this morning? Good, how you doing, BJ? Oh, outstanding, outstanding. So I got a quick question. Uh, actually, I got two of them. One, uh, so one question is concerning the market. The other one's more foreign policy related. Okay. Uh, the first one concerning the market would uh, McDonald's because it's uh, even though I see a stock is in the upper two hundreds, is it somewhat uh, would it be a safer stock in case we have short term to long term uh, problems with our economy because it does provide food to a lot of poor and underclass people. Will it? You know what I'm saying? Well, is that a safe stock? Uh, I've got to go through the numbers to see if it's a safe stock. I mean, it's a safe company. We know the company, and you're correct that if, uh, you know, things slow down, people kind of hurting for money a little bit, they might say, you know, let's go to McDonald's, get a cheeseburger for, I don't know what they go there for, we'll, we'll say $2 versus going to a, uh, you know, Chili's and paying $5 for it. So that, so that could very well happen, could help a, a fast food restaurant. But to say if it's a good stock to buy, it always depends on the fundamentals, which I'll review here for you and give my opinion after I, I, I do that for you. So let, let me 
let me do that right now. I'm thinking about uh, going to look at the McDonald's symbol MCD. Uh, not much float on the stock, and that means that people are not trying to short the stock. Thing is going to go down about 70% institutional owned, which is a, a good number there. Uh, the problem here, BJ, is we got a high PE ratio of 31.4 versus 28.4. In our firm, we just don't like to pay high for the earnings because what that means 31.4 means it would take you 31 years to make up what you pay for the stock based on the earnings of that company now. That's just too high for us. The same thing with the price of sales, 8.1 versus 2.8. They have no book value, no tangible book value. Uh, price of cash flow is also expensive, 23.7 versus 18.7. They do have a good peg ratio of 3.6 versus 6.4. So what all that means is that you're still paying a lot for this company and if they were to falter and not have some good growth and not the sales do as, as good as we think we are or they are they would probably fall now let's look at the growth of the company what they've done in the past over the past year their earnings are down 12 percent that's not good especially when the industry is up 84 percent now their sales did climb by 8.5 percent for some reason the industry shows a strange number here of a growth of 92 percent that sounds kind of high the five-year growth on McDonald's, well, that's 7.2 versus 10.4. That's okay, but not as good as the industry. We do see they pay a dividend here of, uh, what is it, 2.2%. They use 66% of their earnings to pay that out, so that's a that's a decent dividend. We do see on the balance sheet here, they got a current ratio of 1.4 versus 1.2. No debt to equity because the company has no equity, and that can be a problem if things slow down. They could have financial problems trying to get more debt, trying to keep the company going. So I do not like seeing no debt to equity because of no equity. We do see a net profit margin very, very good though, 25.8 versus 8.3. So that means every time you go in there and buy a cheeseburger, uh, they're making about 26 cents on that dollar. That cheeseburger, return on equity, very poor here, 95 negative, same thing as the industry. Uh, looking at the stock price, it was, uh, well, it, it closed up Friday at $254.51, the high $271.15, the low $217.68. Year-to-date, it's down 3.5%. That is better than a decline of 17% of the S&P 500. But I, I think people are thinking the same thing you are. This would be a good stock to go into. Let's see what the analysts say about the earnings going forward. Now, going to go out to December 2023. They're looking for earnings of $10.00. And 59 cents. That's 32 analysts. The low being 10.25, the high being 11.58. So it's a pretty tight range. If I put a multiple of 16.6 on that, I'll get a stock price somewhere around oh probably around 200, 210, uh, be my guess, which is about where the stock is now. Uh, I think that's where the stock was. Let me go back and check that number again. Uh, yeah, 254. So actually at 254, it is overpriced, and I do see those earnings have fallen. Over the last 90 days, they were 1075, now 1059. Uh, I, I agree with your your thesis about you know the, the economy slowing down. People may go to McDonald's more, but I don't think it's gonna be enough to make the stock worth with the current price. So uh, I'd have to say keep looking for another company. I would not not be investing in McDonald's at this point in time. Awesome, man. Hey, I, I appreciate that so much. And hey, may I make more comment? Sure. I want to say a complaint because I really do like your show and you're very knowledgeable. Um, however, I'm prior military. Um, I served uh, eight years in our beloved Marine Corps, and uh, I pay attention to what's going on with the United States, our involvement in this Ukraine-Russia situation, and I noticed um, a narrative, an overall narrative, negative on Russia, 
negative. Uh, and not, not that I'm defending all their actions. However, right. we both live in a country who was ready to go over nuclear war over Cuba uh, and their relationship with the Soviet Union being so close to us. It should be understandable Russia's reaction to NATO pushing closer and closer to their borders. And that's never articulated, or excuse me, that's rarely articulated in the U.S. media. And also, uh, stories like when I came in my car, I turned the radio on, and I heard you talking about um, the morale of the Russian soldier versus the morale of the Ukrainian soldier. Again, that seems somewhat propagandist. Not to say that you're you're a propagandist, Mm -hmm. but wherever you're reporting from, like that's, there's so many variables concerning the morale of personnel in any military, right? So it's not like, hey, I was over in Afghanistan. Everybody wasn't happy over there. Everybody wasn't, we weren't, I mean, dude, we're we're armed service members doing our job. So a story comparing morality versus side versus side, that's, it's it's almost silly. And, um, and even to the point where, you know, Ukraine had has a whole different set of circumstances revolving the men in their country. Um, they also have a, uh, a neo-Nazi situation going on in their country. I don't want to get too deep into it, but sure. I don't know. I, I, I just appreciate, I appreciate Balance Report, and I definitely appreciate your stocks stuff. And I just wanted to draw out that observation in international policy reporting. Yeah, and I appreciate your opinion on that uh, because it, it, it could be wrong. And what I do is I, you know, I read a lot of different things and so forth, and that's what I read from the Wall Street Journal about the Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, but I, on my personal side, I do not like that Russia has gone into uh, Ukraine to actually you know, do what they're doing. I, I, I think it's wrong. I think a lot of people think that. I hear your side of the story. Um, but it's just something that uh, it's, it's really caused problems around the world. I'll put it that way for sure. So, But uh, you're eight years in, as a Marine. Got to respect your opinion of that. So, all righty. Yes, sir. Hey, I appreciate it, man. Hey, thank you. I'll be listening to your show every Sunday, uh, Saturday from here on out, man. Have a great day. Well, BJ, I appreciate that, and you have a great weekend. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Alrighty, that does open the phone line, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. With that, uh, let's talk about financial planning. And for that, we'll go to our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. Good morning, Harrison. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Brent. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Well, good, good. I you got a lot of great tips here, and I know you got a special subject today, so I'm going to turn the mic over to you and, and explain what you're talking about here today. Yeah. So uh, what I wanted to talk about is some of the risks you will encounter as you go through retirement. So market risk is the one that everyone thinks of, and that is the chance that you will lose money investing in the market. And really, that's sometimes the only one that people think of. Um, Traditional asset allocation models use standard deviation as a proxy for risk, and standard deviation really measures volatility, not risk, which there is a difference. Volatility is the short-term price fluctuation of security, while risk is the probability that you will lose money over an extended period of time. So you can have something that is volatile, but maybe not too risky, like a value portfolio, and you can have something that is may be risky, but not too volatile, which maybe could be holding bonds while interest rates are going up. So instead of the mindset of I'm retiring in a year, I can't afford to lose any money, um, I, I don't have time to recover my money, um, you should instead be thinking, well, I'm retiring in a year and I need this money that I have to be invested and to give me income for the next 
30 plus years. Another thing I hear is something like, oh, I've got a million dollars, so I can just put that in a savings account with no volatility and I'll just withdraw $50,000 a year for 20 years. And that's true, you could do that, but that also exposes you to all of the other potential risks in retirement, which could be longevity risk, inflation risk, withdrawal risk, medical cost risk, um, and tax risk, which overall is a much more risky path to take um, as far as running out, of running, or running out of money goes. So longevity risk is the possibility that you live longer than you would expect. And if we look at life expectancies, life expectancies for people 65 or older has been steadily increasing. And right now, someone who is 65 has an expectancy of about 20 years or so to go. But 20 years from now, that number could be larger, and we could have more and more people living into their 90s. And so one thing I hear is, oh, I'm not going to live that long. But I'm sure people who were retiring 20 years ago thought the same thing, and now they hear they are in their 80s, um, still going. So another thing I hear is, oh, I want to have my last check bounce, meaning I want to spend all the money that I have, and, <laughs> and that's it, which that, that's isn't very a- realistic because – you don't know when you're going to die. Yeah, so, it's always a funny um, when people say that. It's like, well, yeah, tell me the date you're going to die. We'll figure it out for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, unless, you, yeah, it, it's hard to know that. So, right. <laughs> um, another one is um, <laughs> another one is inflation. So we're starting to see inflation risk, and um, at some point that could be resolved and, and go back down to sustainable levels. But even at low levels of inflation, there can be a large difference in purchasing power between the start of retirement and the end of retirement. So with 3% inflation, your purchasing power almost gets cut in half in just 20 years. So you know you need your money to continue growing to be able to just to keep up with that purchasing power um, that inflation is eating away. Um, another one is withdrawal risk. So the possibility that you would draw too much of your nest egg and deplete it too fast. You could have the perfect investment portfolio, but if you take too much, you still run the risk of running out of the money. So um, if you start out with like a 10% withdrawal rate, even with a, you know, even with a, a good rate of return, after we account for inflation, that could only last 10 to 15 years, which is, you know, most people live longer than that. Um, another one is medical cost risk. So as retirees age, they tend to slow down and maybe not spend as much. But that, in many cases, is offset by larger healthcare costs like elder care, um, nursing homes, caregivers, things like that, which none of which is covered by Medicare. So with those costs adding up, you either need insurance, which is extremely expensive in itself, or you need another source of funds to withdraw heavily from, which means you need that nest egg to have grown so that you can access it if you need to. Um, and lastly, tax risk. So historically, tax rates are relatively low right now, and I would say it's a pretty good chance that we're going to see those rates go up, especially over the next 30 years or so. And I don't think that's going to happen for just people that make for above $400,000. I think we could see that for um, for a lot more people. And one of the main problems we have with people in retirement is those required minimum distributions. Well, the way those work is, Every year you get older, you have to withdraw a larger percentage. Well, when you're in your later stages of retirement, you're forced to withdraw a lot of money in the form of RMDs, which if we have tax rates go up, that means your take-home pay is going to be less than what you ultimately thought would it be. So when it all comes down to, you know, everyone thinks of market risk and, you know, I can't lose any money, I'm going to be retiring and everything, but you have to look at all the possible risks in retirement and you have to have the right investment plan to make sure that you can 
keep up with inflation, not outlive your money, and continue to have growth all the way through retirement. And, and Harrison, this is such an important time right now because this is when you really need a financial planner and a good investment advisor because markets are down. And, and I know there's people out there that probably sold off destroying their financial plan because maybe they did themselves online or something. Uh, this is a difficult time when you see that the, and I think I said the S&P year to date is down 17%. This is when you've got to have that good financial plan to keep you on track and also that good investments keep you on track. Um, and, and that's why, and I know people kind of do it, uh, well, I can just do it at, um, you know, online and so forth through my, my projected out to, you know, 20, 30 years. But it's so important during times like this to have a good plan and have someone to stick, you know, stick with that there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to have a plan when the S&P is going up 20% every single year. But right. when we have times like this, when, you know, things are going down and you're withdrawing money from that and you don't have any other wages coming in anymore, you need a plan to make sure that that's, that market volatility, again, volatility, not actual risk, is not going to hurt your ability to retire. So it, it's important when things get a little bit more scary because that's when people make emotional decisions, which can really hurt your retirement. Right. And, and, I, know, and, and I, I can't think of the online. But I guess Fidelity has it probably, you know, these other other companies have it where you go there. Oh, just put in your numbers and you can figure out where you'll be, you know, down the road, you know, when you're 65 and how you can live to 90 and all this other stuff. But it doesn't work because, as you you made a good point as well, that it's easy to have a plan when you're going up 20% per year, no problem at all. But when you're down, you know, for the year, things aren't looking very good right now with inflation and, you know, a recession and the war and all these things. Like, oh, it can really get you off your plan. This is when those plans that they have online just don't seem to hold water. Yeah, and I mean, those plans, they're, they're very simple. All they are is really future value calculation. So here's your present value. Here's a withdrawal rate. Here's a growth rate. What's your future value? That's how long it'll last. I mean, you can, there's calculators online. You can do that. You can do that in Excel all over the place. But what they don't account for is any changes that come along the way. And a lot of financial planning is making adjustments and changes at the right times along the way, making the right decisions when it's necessary. And a, a simple you know, future value calculation doesn't have the ability to react to something like that. So in times like these, there are adjustments that should be made, but there's also mistakes that can be made. And you have to understand that distinction because if you do make the mistake, especially early in retirement, I mean, that that could really hurt you and cause you to run out of money or have to go back to work, which no one wants to do in your 80s. Right. And and I got to point this out because uh, you're, you're on a, a salary. You don't sell any products and so forth. I This is when I, I hate to see it, but there's financial planners out there that people are down on their investments. Oh, well, sell out of that market and we'll get you into a nice, safe, fixed annuity paying X percent. Uh, gosh, it just irritates you know, me. That's not financial planning. <laughs> yeah, I, I see that a lot because, you know, after it's really common to see fixed annuities that were purchased in like 2008 or in 2020 or even um, in the early 2000s. And so every time there's a pullback in the market, people take all their money and then they go into fixed, fixed type of annuities, which might have a return of, you know, one to two to three percent per year. And, you know, then you look forward and, oh, yeah, that was absolutely the wrong thing to do. But it's that emotion that's telling you, Ooh, I can't handle this volatility. I don't have the time to make it up. I need to make a change. I, I can't I can't handle seeing my account go down. And again, that emotion causes you to uh, make a mistake. And it's it's easier to look back in the past and 
see that it was a mistake. But when you're in it, you know, again, those emotions sometimes just take control. And, and unfortunately, there's are people out there that do call themselves financial planners, that they take advantage of that because they know that's an easy sale. They just, you know, play off your emotions like, oh, but you couldn't live and this is going to go down further and so forth. But if you go on this fixed annuity, oh, it'd be so safe. You don't have to worry about it any longer. And they take advantage of people's emotions as opposed to taking the time, which takes a lot more time to educate people on why you stay the course and why your investments are strong. But that's why, again, you're a great financial planner. So Harrison, thanks uh, for joining us this morning. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks, Brent. Uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Okay. Sounds good. Bye-bye. <clears throat> again, there's uh, Harrison Johnson. He's our financial planner. He's a CFP. Again, he's on a salary. He does not sell any products. Uh, you do get a free consultation with him if you want to sit down and talk to him first to see what true financial planning is. Uh, give him a call at the office, 858 858- Five four six four three zero six. That's eight five eight five four six four three zero six. Or check them out on our website. Go to the website at smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And you can email them or talk to them uh, or get or get that free you know free consultation with him to find out more about true financial planning. All right, our phone number is here eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. That's 833-288-0973. Let's come to Oceanside and speak with Mike. Mike, <clears throat> you're on the Smart Invest Show with Brent Chase. How can we help you? How you doing, gentlemen? Um, I'd like to ask about a uh, – uh, it's an ETF, and it's offered by Chase. I'm not a huge Big Blue fan, but they are one of the largest seven banks. and um, It's J-E-P-I. And I've noticed over the last three years that it's been in existence, extremely low volatility for the most part, and it's paying between a 10 and 13% dividend currently. And with all the ups and downs that we've been looking at, it seems like a fairly safe haven, unless I'm not seeing something uh, to park some money. I'm about a year away from retirement at 61. I'm pretty well diversified and have money sitting either doing nothing or losing at the rate of inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So <clears throat> I, I believe they do, their their deal is covered calls. Yes. And uh, maybe you could explain to us briefly also when you're done what a covered call is, how it operates, and what the pros and minuses are to it. A lot of people told me if you have stock, covered calls are a great way to make some income. And if you don't mind selling it and buying something else, it's a great way and a great alternative to selling stock, um, whereas you're making some premiums along the way. Yeah, let me because unfortunately Chase is not here today. He's off today. Normally he would be pulling up this on a, on a separate screen to actually look at that. But I, I can talk about the ETF in general, and I was going to say the exact same thing I could tell when it said equity premium income. That means they're using some type of strategy. In this case, it sounds like covered calls to enhance the return. Now, I, I've been in the industry for over 40 years. I remember when I first came across like, wow, these covered calls are great. This was back in 87. We had a higher income on these, oh, they call them Ginny Mae Plus funds. Like, wow, how could these falter? Well, what actually happened for, for I'm going to say for a couple of years, they worked very well. And then when the market went a different direction, the negative was far greater to where they lost not, you know, five or 10% like all the other uh, Ginny Mae funds, 
but they lost 15 to 20% because of the strategy they were using. So when you're doing the cover calls, yeah, it's great when things are going up and they go up a little bit, you get paid the premium for doing that cover call. And, and what it virtually is, is that you're agreeing to sell the stock at a future price. So let, let's try to pull an example. The stock right now is at 10. Uh, there's a covered call that uh, you, you can sell that call and covered means you own the position. Uh, naked means you don't own the position. But say there's a, an option out there to sell it at 12. Well, they will pay you, we'll say 50 cents for that option to buy that at 12. Well, that's pretty good. I make 50 cents and if it doesn't go to 12, it goes to 11, 11, 50. Wow, I get to keep the stock plus I get paid 50 cents. The problem comes, comes in, and, and I've tested this uh, many years ago to say, can this really enhance our portfolio? The problem is that stock goes from 10 to 12 to 14 to 16. Oh shoot, you end up selling it at 12. Now you get that cash back. Now you gotta find something else to buy that has you know good fundamentals that's worth buying. And then if you buy something else, you may sell that premium, and we'll say you get another stock at 10, uh, same situation, selling it at 12, 50 cents. Well, now that new stock that you bought, now that stock didn't go up, it went down from 10 to eight. Well, now you're in a lost position. You'll get the 50 cents, but you're still down $1.50. So it, it and in, in theory, it, it sounds like it would be a pretty good idea, but longer term, it doesn't work. And I think you mentioned getting close to retirement. I would not wanna use this for retirement because they also generally have higher you know, income. It looks pretty good. But when the market goes against them, well, all of a sudden it starts losing rather quickly. So I don't like to use uh, options at all uh, and options. And these are the safer because it's covered. And again, that means that, you know, you can, you'll, you'll give away that, that security. But the problem that they have is now they got to find something else to buy. And also too, it went up, as I said, from 10 to 16. Well, now they might have to try to buy it back. Okay, well, let's buy it back at 16. Well, they buy back at 16, now it goes from 16 down to, to 14, they've lost money. So it gets too too risky. Yeah. It, it's, but, but in the last two years, we've seen the rest of the market go down 20 to 30%, and these have not fluctuated in, in accordance with that. So when, when, when you say things would get worse, I mean, how, what do you mean by worse? I mean, we've seen worse, and it hasn't affected it yet you know um yeah it it almost seems like it's contrarian to to the way they should have operated back in the 80s and i know everything in the 80s it used to be right like you know 70 30 portfolios and stuff is not working now so it's almost like everything has changed with this new economy yeah well and and again the key was you said the last couple years and and when i look at and again i think you said you're 61 hopefully you live another 25, 30 years um, during that time frame. This has worked well because the markets are falling and not doing as well. But in a rising market, they won't work as well and they could actually end up buying things at a higher price um, with those covered calls. So worked great for a couple of years, may work great this year as well. But when uh, when I started actually saying, can I I do this to enhance my client's returns? It just sure. didn't work out. What, what I did, I did a test of my own. I, I pulled from my own money, my own portfolio, and started testing it, and, and it just did not work out. I mean, and, and these are not real returns, but like for the covered call portfolio, I earned like 7%. For the non-covered call portfolio, I earned 12%. So, and when I looked at saying over a 10-year period, over a 20-year period, that makes a big difference. Even though there's times like now when the markets are falling 
a covered call strategy appears to work pretty good because of the fact you're getting that premium. Um, but, um, and I assume with, with JP Morgan, they've probably been around for quite a while. Um, and the hard part too is that when, when everything else is doing well and they're not doing well, it, you start changing. That's why you need a, a system, and, and I've been doing the same thing now for, well, almost 40 years, that works through good times and bad times. And, and again, I, I, I can't give our performance numbers on, on air, but uh, I'm trying to think of how to do this so I don't get in trouble with the SEC. We, we do well during down periods, but it's not like, oh, we're making tons of money. I guess that's a safe way to right. kind of put it. Yeah. Um, now, covered calls, uh, if you own stocks, when would you consider doing those on your own personal stocks, or would you not do that either? I mean, I've sat on a lot of stocks long-term. They've done, some of them done good, some of them haven't done so good. But, um, you know, had I been maybe doing some covered calls on some of the stock I owned, oh, well, you know, you lose some of it. But, you know, my dad always taught me, learn how to take small profits along the way. Yeah, and, and, and that, <clears throat> like what your dad said, sounds like it's good advice, but I've seen people take small profits, and then, gosh, had I held that on, I would have got another 100% gain on it. So that's the problem with the, with using a covered call. And I there was one thing I looked at, too, saying, because we have every, every week, every day, we actually know what our target sell price on a company. So say we have that company that uh, the target sell price is 12 uh, the stock is at 10, like, you know what? It, the target sell price is at 12. Let's go ahead and put a cover call on it, make some extra money, because if it hits 12 anyways, we would sell out. Well, what happens is that that covered call could be for three or six months. Well, in the meantime, all of a sudden the company releases some new product, and now their earnings are gonna go up dramatically. Well, now our target sell price is not 12. Now the target sell price is 16 because of greater earnings going forward. Shoot, right. now, now we've locked in that lower price, I wish I hadn't done that. So it always brings you back to understand what we're investing in. Things will change as far as earnings will go up, earnings will go down, all these different things. I, I don't want to be locked into something because I could be locking in a lower price. And that was really the thing that really hurt me. You, you, you won't have probably negative losses with the covered calls, but your returns will not be as good if right. you just did the plain vanilla and bought good quality companies. You, we know they're going to go up and down. But in, in, when we buy something we're holding for three to five years, um, that turns out much better than trying to get a little bit extra premium because I feel the same way. Like, gosh, if I get an enhanced return by 2%, 3%, like, wow, that'd be great. But it, it doesn't work because things change. So I guess it would be kind of like I'm in real estate business. Uh, had you done a lease option on one of your properties three years ago, you'd be real, <laughs> you'd be real sorry that you locked into a lease option or something like that. That's why you don't see those. Yep. And, going, and Mike, that's a good, that, right now. That, that's a great example because you just don't know what the future is and you, and then you'd have to sell that property at a much lower price than what it is now. And, and again, right. that's why we spend so much time and before we invest in any company, it's 10, 15, 20 hours of research to really understand what's going on with that business. Um, we don't want to give it away at a lower price just because we got paid, you know, an extra percent or two for the cover right. call. So makes sense. Makes sense. Well, Mike, uh, great, great question there. And, um, especially with close retirement, I, I gotta say, I, I would not recommend the, uh, JP Morgan equity premium income fund. Okay. Alrighty. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Alrighty. That does open another phone line. Actually, all phone lines are open. 833-288. 0973. That's 
and I was going to look at something else here that I want to talk about, and that's uh, our reserves. I kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier in the show, but on August 31st, uh, we'll get an update on where the strategic petroleum reserves stand. And actually, I didn't get to check that. I want to check that on the 31st. I did not. But um, what I was looking at after taking one million barrels a day from the reserves, uh, the most recent data before the 31st showed that there were 400 and 53.1 million barrels in the reserve. Now that's down from 621.3 million barrels one year ago. Now, a couple things worry me here. First, this was meant as a temporary fix with hopes of increasing production, which what I have seen does not appear to have happened. Maybe I'm missing something, but I'm not seeing the production increase. Uh, In addition to that, there is talk that the Middle East may reduce their production. My second concern is, in 30 days or so when the program is over, it appears the levels in the SPR will be somewhere around 390 million barrels. Now, I don't know about you, but that does not give me a good comfort feeling. Uh, In addition to not replacing uh, the production of the oil, what will the government be doing to replace the oil they took from the strategic reserves? I'm, I'm also assuming the oil that they used to meet the shortfall was priced much lower then what we'll be buying it back at, especially since they're buying, will increase the demand for oil, which could push oil prices even higher if you know that the government's now trying to replace a couple hundred million barrels of oil. So I, I believe a long-term program to a good clean energy policy, but in the short term, we really need to focus on a fix to how to produce more oil and gas. Uh, I hope they had a plan for this when they began the 1 million barrel a day reduction in the SPR. So these are things that you you know you, you think about and you hope they have a plan. Um, I was really disappointed that, okay, I didn't like the plan in the, the beginning of taking 1 million barrels a day from the SPR, but uh, now we're down to, and I, and I think when it's all done, we'll be below 400 million barrels. And that, in my opinion, was supposed to be for emergencies for the military. Uh, if something happened that was really emergency, not just because of, of higher prices. So. Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens, I guess, the end of September. But uh, I am expecting probably oil prices going back up to somewhere, probably around $100 a barrel. All right. Uh, phone number is 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Let's go to San Diego and speak with Kevin. Kevin, you're in the Smart Vegetable Brent Chase. How can we help you? Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure, thanks for being there. Uh, well, I'm I'm one of the unfortunate souls that was heavily invested in Nvidia. Oh, I have to. Yes, I have. A, I had about uh, about a quarter of my portfolio. I had about 250 in there. I lost about 50, and I don't know. You know, now that it would be a huge loss if I sell it. Or should I just hang on and weather the storm? And because the loss was so great, eventually <clears throat> she'll uh, she'll recoup. Well, Kevin, let me. I'm, 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 yeah, I'm kind of up against the the end of the show here, so I want to get through, through this for you quickly. So I want to take a look at Nvidia symbol NVDA. They're in semiconductors, only 1.4 percent on the float. Uh, I do see a very high PE ratio still of 44.6 versus 16.2. Price of sales, 11.6 versus 3.9. That's very high. Price to book value, 14.3 versus 3.5. And price of cash flow, also expensive, 
45.9 versus 11.3. Uh, I do say a good peg ratio, 1.1 versus 4. Over the last year, earnings are only up 9.5%. I say only because the industry is up 45.6. Sales climbed by 35.8 versus 14.9. That's a positive. Earnings per share growth estimate going forward, 22.8 for NVIDIA versus 15.7. That's a positive. They only pay a 0.1% dividend versus 5.2, or, or using 5.2%. They're to pay that out, so I wouldn't hold this company, obviously, <clears throat> for the uh, dividend. Look at the balance sheet. Got a very good current ratio, 3.6 versus 2.7. Debt to equity, 0.5 versus 0.6. That is good. Net profit margin, 26%, just slightly better than the industry at 25. Now, here's the situation that you're concerned about. Price on the on Friday was $136.47. Oh my gosh, the high was $346.47. The low, $132. Uh, 70 and they're pretty much at that low and they are down year to date 53.6 uh the s p is only down 17 so that's a problem let's look forward here to see what the analysts give him for earnings going forward uh six dollars and 26 cents based on the mean of 35 analysts the high 875 the low 510 so a big range there meaning that they're not really sure what they're going to be looking at they have dropped those earnings down from a high of uh, 675 90 days ago to again the 626. Now, if I put a multiple of uh, 16 on that, I get a stock price somewhere around 110. I will call it uh, still below what it's at. So I I know this is always tough, um, and I know there's some news that came out against Nvidia uh, that things are not going well for them. This is when you have to say the fundamentals don't look good on this company. It seems to be overpriced. I need to sell this one and try to find a good company at you know, 10, 12 times earnings. So my recommendation is if you came to us as an advisor, we would say, yep, we're gonna sell it and, and buy something else here. And Kevin, I hope that helped. There's the closing bell. I've got to go. So thank you for listening to the Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail, your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858 858- 546-4306, that's 858-546-4306, or visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com, that's smartinvesting2000.com, and for more daily educational information on investment tips, go to our Facebook page, Smart Investing with Brent Chase Wilsey. Thanks for the, enjoying the show today. Uh, we'll tune in next week to the Smart Investing Show, and have a great weekend. Today, I did all that. Say